0: Well, I just want to welcome everybody who's listening to this. If you're in our campuses in Waterbury and New Milford or Derby, welcome to you. For those of you who have found us online, uh, greetings to you as well. My name Brian, and I'm one of the lead pastors at Walnut Hill. And it's just a privilege to share from God's Word. I'm really excited to share the story uh, from Luke chapter 7 today as we're in this series called Red Letters, looking at the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Before we get into chapter 7, though, what I really want to do is share a quick story with you. See, last weekend I had the privilege of being in Atlanta for a conference, and it was a conference for one of our mission partners that we have called ELAM, E-L-A-M. ELAM Ministries works in the Middle East. And I was there for two and a half days just listening to stories about how God is moving in the Middle East in ways that that Elam, the people of Elam and the leaders of Elam could never have thought of or imagined. It was blow your socks off kinds of stories. Let me share one of them with you. One guy got up on the stage and he shared with the group of about 200 of us that he was a part of an initiative where they were smuggling Bibles into a country in the Middle East. Now, when you hear that, you think, okay, there are some people who put some Bibles in their suitcase and they fly into the country. You've got the wrong idea if you're thinking about it that way. No, there are people who literally carry the New Testament Bibles into their country. They hike through the mountains. In the wintertime, this this guy who was up on the stage, he showed us these pictures of them smuggling the Bibles into their country all over the mountains in wintertime. It looked like they were climbing Mount Everest, the wind blowing. They had to go miles carrying backpacks full of Bibles. Once they got into the country, they would bring them, and they do bring them, to these storefronts where they hide the Bibles in the back closets. Then there are these Christians who come, and they gather the New Testaments, and they distribute them throughout their country. This man on the stage, he said, he was was really in a humble way saying, man, the Lord's been so good to us. We've been able to to deliver Bibles. When somebody requests them, we can get to them, usually within one day. So I've been calling it Elam Prime. They're able to get these Bibles to people in one day. Then he began to tell this story. So imagine these Bibles, they're printed, then they're carried through the mountains into this country. Now imagine a woman requesting a Bible. Her name is Mary. She wants this New Testament. She heard about this Jesus. She's a Muslim, but she wants to read about Jesus. So now this group of Elam leaders bring this Bible to Mary and hand it to Mary. She begins to read the gospel accounts, begins to read the story Of Jesus she's so taken by this Jesus about this God who loves her so much that he came down as one of us this father in heaven who loves her so much that he reveals himself in Jesus she's she's so enamored by this that she gives her life to Jesus now at the time she's taking care of her niece her sister's daughter and this niece was actually very ill In fact, the doctors said that she only had a few days to live. And so, this daughter's mother was in prison at the time. Let's call her Beth. They give Beth two nights leave from prison to come out and stay with her sister, Mary, who's taking care of her daughter. So all of a sudden, Beth comes in the door and Mary begins to tell her sister all about her life transformation. I read this Bible. I read about Jesus and how he changes lives. I even read how this Jesus is able to heal. And so Beth says, well, I guess if your God can heal, well, then let's pray that my daughter would be healed. Man. So Mary decides to pray, lays hands on the daughter, and prays that Jesus would heal her. And guess what happened? Over the course of two days, the daughter got better. So of course, now Beth, seeing that this God of her her sister was real, that this Jesus was real, she gives her life to Jesus as well. She goes back into the prison, and just in the first month of being back in the prison, she's led five people to Jesus. She's leading this prison to Jesus because she met and encountered this very real Jesus. And it all started with the power of God's word. I wonder if we come into our campuses, if we come listening to this message wherever you are, whether you're on an airplane, in your workplace, or in your car driving right now, I wonder if we come with that level of expectation that God can move in power through his word. I hope that we do. So as we open this word, friends, I pray that he would move with power, that he would change and transform our lives. We're in a year called Ignite Compassion, and in this story out of Luke's Gospel, chapter seven, we learn from Jesus what it looks like to be compassionate people. Let me share the story, and then I wanna draw our attention to a few different things at the end. It starts in verse 11, and it says this, soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. If you're to rewind, you'd notice that Jesus was in Capernaum. This is where Peter lived. This is where he did a lot of his ministry. Now he goes to Nain. This is a, a walk of about 20 to 30 miles. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And Nain is, a, is southwest of Capernaum, about 20 to 30 miles away. And you'd have to elevate 700 feet from, from the sea level. And so this was not an easy hike. When I think about this and when I read the Gospels, you know what happens for me is that I replace my, my flannel graph version of Jesus and it's replaced with this, this tough man. Jesus was, was a tough person. Here he is going from Capernaum to Naim, walking there in sandals in the heat of the day, a two-day journey, 20 to 30 miles. I want you to picture this kind of Jesus as he travels to Nain. It says he travels there with his disciples, but then we learn even more. It says a large crowd followed him. Now, many people believe that this could have been upwards of a thousand people who were following him at this time, even if it were hundreds of people. Imagine this group of people traveling with Jesus. Why are they traveling with him? Well, they're traveling with him because they see wherever Jesus go, he's bringing life. He's casting demons out of people. He's healing people of of leprosy. He's speaking about this this new kingdom. Wherever Jesus goes, he's bringing life. And so they're curious about this Jesus. They want to draw near to him. They want to go wherever he goes. But the thing that really struck me is the devotion and the commitment that this crowd must have had to follow Jesus. And I wonder, are we that committed? I'm sure Jesus didn't hand out itineraries and say, hey, I want you to take a look at the itinerary here as we go to to Nain. It's gonna tell you when we're gonna eat, where we're gonna stay, how long we're gonna be there, when we're gonna return. No, he, he just heads towards Nain and a crowd of people follow after him. Giving up everything, taking the long journey to follow him. I wonder, are we that committed to Jesus? You know, every year we hold a family festival here at the church around October. This is a chance for the kids to come and dress up, get candy, get their face painted. Uh, On one occasion, my kids were dressing up and they wanted the whole family to dress up. They, They dressed up as the minions and they wanted me to dress up as Gru. And the prominent feature of Gru is that he has a shaved head. He's bald. And so my girl said, Papa, for this to be complete, you need to be bald. You need to shave your head like all the way to the skin. And I told them that I wasn't going to do that. And then I remember Reese looking at me very seriously, and she said, "Papa, how committed are you to this?" And I looked back at her as serious as I possibly could, and I said, "Not very. I'm not very committed to this at all." Friends, I wonder how committed are we to following Jesus? Are are we half in? Are we part way in? Are we fully devoted? Are we fully committed? I see a crowd of people who are willing to drop everything to walk 20 to 30 miles to follow him, not knowing what they're going to step into. Already, this crowd is demonstrating a level of faith. Let's read on in verse 12. It says this, they get into the city of Nain, and it says a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. A few things here. What's happening? Jesus is coming in with, with his crowd and he's met with, by another crowd. I want you to kind of Google Earth this one, uh, elevate up and look down at this, and you see Jesus entering the city with a crowd, and you see another crowd following this woman and her son in a casket making the way out of the city. So we're introduced to a couple new characters in this story. We've, we've heard about Jesus. We've heard about the crowd following him. But now we learn about this young man who has died. It was probably the case that he died that day. It was Jewish custom that if you died, you, you were buried the same day. And so this young man is, is, is being carried in a coffin, but it's probably not what you're imagining. It's probably more like a wood plank or maybe even a woven basket that they would lay a body in wrapped in cloth. And they would carry this with probably poles sticking out, only touching the poles. You weren't to touch the coffin or the basket or the wood plank or the body, otherwise you'd become unclean. And we'll learn more about that in a moment we learn about this woman who has suffered great loss. Here she is, in this funeral procession, going out to bury her only son. And prior to that, we learn that her husband passed away as well. She's a widow. In first century culture, this would mean that this woman really had lost all hope If she had a family business, it was probably most likely that this young son, this young man helped her in that. If they were farmers, he probably did a lot of the work in the outdoors, planting, harvesting, plowing, and now she had lost her one and only son. Her most likely place where she would find herself would be on the streets begging. But you might say, hey, listen, no, there's a great crowd around her. Therefore, she had this great support system But actually, I don't want you to be fooled by this crowd. See, actually, it was a part of Jewish custom that you would accompany the body to its burial site, whether you knew the person or not, whether you cared or not. And so a great crowd would develop whenever somebody would pass away and they would escort the body to the place of burial. Oftentimes, you would even have professional mourners And sometimes you would even pay professional mourners to walk alongside the the casket as it was carried out, demonstrating mourning paid off. And so here it's probably more likely that you have a crowd around her that's not there because they're showing compassion towards her, but instead because they feel obligated to be there. Which causes us to think about our own lives of compassion. Are we living truly compassionate lives, or are we living lives caring for others out of obligation? And so we move on in this passage. It, it moves on here, and it says this: When the Lord saw her, I love how Luke calls Jesus the Lord here. It says, when the Lord saw her, His heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry. He said. Now, this is an interesting moment. We're going to talk a little bit later about how Jesus saw the woman. But then he says to her, Don't cry. Doesn't that sound a little bit insensitive as you read it? Do you ever go to a funeral and and say to the person, Hey, just don't cry? But here's how we should picture it Luke says, This is the Lord, He, he has a heavenly perspective on the situation. You should almost view Jesus like a parent coming in and and consoling his child, saying, Don't cry. I can tell you friends as a parent oftentimes when, when my kid is going through something difficult maybe they've they've hurt themselves physically or or they're stressed out by something in school or somebody said something to them that that hurt them and, and they come to me and they and they're crying maybe they're weeping over the situation oftentimes I'll get down I'll embrace them and I'll say don't cry but the only reason I can say that is because I know that there's, there's a better future ahead. Don't cry, don't worry. I know that there's, there's better days ahead. And so Jesus, he comes to this woman and the only reason that this isn't crass or, or rude to say don't cry is because he has this heavenly perspective. Listen, don't cry. Something better is coming along. And she would experience something much better better. The story goes on. It says, Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Wow. Jesus comes, and as I said, the thing you're not supposed to do, Jesus does. He comes in and he touches the, the wood plank, that, 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 that stretcher that the young man is laying on, which would have made him ceremonially unclean. You can read about this, this rule in Numbers chapter 19. It says, If you touch the dead, that you are unclean for seven days. You'd have to go into this ritual of, of cleansing for seven days. But here again, Luke is describing the authority of Jesus. You see, in the beginning, Luke describes how Jesus has authority in his teaching. Then you keep reading the Gospel of Luke and you read about how Jesus has authority over, over the evil one, casting out demons. Then you read about how Jesus has authority to heal, even heal leprosy, which was considered the thing that you could never heal. And now here Jesus is saying, not only do I have authority in all those aspects, but I have authority over death. Jesus knows what people think. He's like, listen, I know you think by me touching this, I'm going to catch what he has. But the way it works in in my life as as the king of kings, as as the Lord who has come on this planet, no, actually it works in reverse. What I touch, they catch. I'm not catching what they have. They're catching what I have. And isn't this true of of the life of Jesus that when he touches us, he doesn't catch what we have. We catch what he has. Life, forgiveness, forgiveness eternity. And then he, he says to this boy after touching the coffin, young man, I tell you, get up. We're going to talk more about this in a moment, but I love how Jesus, he, he just heals this boy through the power of his words. No show, no lights, no fireworks. He just commands him to get up. And then it goes on. and This is interesting. It says, and, and then the dead boy sat up. So he does two things. The first is he sat up then he began to talk. I've always wondered what he said. We have no idea, but but he just begins to talk. And then it says, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. We'll talk about this more in a moment too, but there's this return. What once was dead is brought to life, and then it's returned to its rightful place. And this is what Jesus does. What once was alive then becomes dead, but then he resurrects it, and he puts it back in its rightful place. What once was alive in the garden, this fellowship with the Father, died in the fall. Now sin has entered the world, but in Jesus we are brought back to life and we will be put back in our rightful position as the children of God. This is a little glimpse of the whole story of what jesus is doing and then the the passage goes on it says great fear swept the crowd and they praised god saying a mighty prophet has risen among us and god has visited his people in verse 17 and the news about jesus spread throughout judea and the surrounding countryside just a few things to say here did you notice what they called jesus in this moment they said wow a a great prophet is here a great prophet They're they're comparing Jesus in this moment. You see, there are other prophets that had risen people from the dead, too. A man named Elijah and a man named Elisha. You can read the stories in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And you can see, actually, they both raised a boy back to life. Elijah and Elisha. They raised a boy back to life. And in both of those stories, they also took that boy, once raised from life, back to life, and they handed him back to their mother. And so they're comparing here. But when you compare the stories, they're actually very different because the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they had to cry out to God, Lord, would you heal this boy? They had to lay on the boy three times in order for the boy to be raised to life. But all Jesus does is say, hey, I command you, get up. It's very different. The authority that Jesus carries and because of what Jesus does, there's great excitement there and the news of Jesus. it spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. I want to ask a couple questions. And the first is this. I want to ask, you know, what do we learn from the compassion of Jesus in this story? What can we take away from this? And as I look at, at the compassion of Jesus, what I see is a progression, a movement that takes place that we can learn from him what our compassion should look like. And the first part of the movement is this, is that the first thing Jesus did is that he saw. This is the first part of the progression of of compassion. That actually, compassion always starts with seeing. As you read through the Gospels, you see so often how it's through what Jesus saw that he was moved with compassion. He fed the 5,000, but before that, it says that he saw the crowd and his heart moved in compassion. Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. But before that, he would see Mary, Lazarus's sister, mourning. And so his heart was moved with compassion. When Jesus rides in to Jerusalem, he sees the city and his heart is moved with compassion. It says he weeps over the city. From the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother and he has compassion for his mother. Compassion always starts with seeing. So we have to ask ourselves in this moment, what did Jesus see in this story? What was, he, what was he seeing? So let's go through it. He comes into Nain. There's a great crowd following him. And he walks and he sees this, this boy who's dead. He sees this widow who, who had lost her husband and now her son. He sees this crowd be behind her following, going out of the gates to bury the son so what, what was Jesus seeing in all this? What, what caused his heart to be moved with compassion? What, what caused him to, to act in this way? Was it because he, he wanted the opportunity to preach? Maybe he walked in and said, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to preach. I'll raise this boy to life and then I'll be able to preach and say, wow, listen, this is what the son of man is going to do. He, he, he's going to be risen from the dead. And in you too, Through the Son of Man, Jesus, you're going to be risen from the dead. It would have been a great opportunity to preach, but that's that's not the opportunity he saw. Did he see an opportunity for a testimony? For this boy to give testimony of the healing power of Jesus? Maybe, but I don't think that's what his eyes were set on. Did he see an opportunity to take a bow for self-promotion for all that he could do? Now, I don't think that's what his eyes were, were set on. See, I think there's something very telling in this story when Jesus raises the boy to life and then the very next thing he does, it indicates why he did it. He hands the son back to the woman. And in, his, in this return, what we learn is that what Jesus saw, he saw the person. He saw this woman whose, whose heart was broken, who had lost everything, and therefore, Jesus, man, he, he, he saw this woman, which then led him to the second part of the progression, was that he, he felt something. So he saw this woman and the condition that she was, and, and then he, he felt something, that his heart was, was broken, that Jesus actually allowed himself to, to enter into this story, to enter into, to experience what the woman was experiencing, and his heart broke. You know, I'm reminded of when Greg Taylor came to visit us several months ago. He, he was the author of the book, Here Now With You. And he challenged us to ask this question of, of others. Hey, what's it like to be you today? I wonder how many of us have asked that question of others. Hey, what's it like to be Brian today? Hey, what's it like to be Tom today? What's it like to be Sarah today? And through that question, we allow ourselves to enter in To experience what other people are going through. And this is what Jesus does. He allows himself to feel and experience the pain, the sorrow, the mourning of this woman and it breaks his heart. Which moves to the third part of the progression. So he saw, he felt, and then he moved. Now I love that that Jesus, he didn't just see and then kind of sit there and judge and analyze what he saw. No, he he saw, and then he, he had a heart of compassion for them, and then, and then he actively did something about it. Remember, Jesus is the one who tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, and the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus honors one person. It's the one who actually stops and does something to meet the need. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He, does, he sees, he feels, and he moves. Which then leads me to the next question that we have to ask. I wonder, who are we in this story? So I was thinking about this story. I was just asking myself, man, who am I in this, in this story? Who are we? And I think certainly we are the crowd in this story. We are the crowd that actually we're meant to read this story. We're meant to experience this this story. We're meant to, to get ourselves into this story, to see it unfold and to learn from it. This is what the crowd and the disciples were doing. They were watching Jesus intently, this one who was bringing life. They were observing it and they were learning from Jesus. So friends, I think we are certainly the crowd we need to be in a posture of learning. What do we need to learn from Jesus in this? And so I think we need to learn from this progression. We need to be people who see. I wonder, are you seeing? Are you looking around to see people in need? To see people that the Lord places just a, a passion on your heart for? Are, are, you, are you looking You know, I got to tell you, there are times when I'm driving somewhere, and then I get to my destination, and I think back, and I think to myself, wow, I don't remember even making this drive. Maybe it's going home, somewhere familiar, and, and I think to myself, wow, I don't even remember getting on the highway. When did I do that? I don't even remember going past exit 10. I don't remember getting off the highway. I don't remember, you know, turning left. I don't remember doing all these things. I just, I've just kind of arrived it was almost like I was on autopilot the whole way. Friends, I got to tell you, sometimes I think we get that way in our faith, just on autopilot, just kind of cruising through life. Man, I don't even really know what happened today. I just kind of went through the, the motions, went through the process, went through the rhythm of, of life, and now I've just found myself at the end of the day on autopilot. Well, I think we need to learn from Jesus in this moment to be people who are constantly seeing him at work, seeing others that we need to bless, no longer on autopilot, but fully aware of how God wants to work and use us. So how do we see better? I want to encourage you in three ways. First thing I want to encourage you to do, now these are very practical things. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is this. Before you ever get into the room with another person, early in the morning, how do, we, how do we see others? We ask God to reveal people, to place people on our heart. Before you even enter a room with another person, go before the Lord and say, Lord, who do you want me to see today? And if the Lord gives you a person, a name, write it down, take it with you. The second thing I want to share with you is now once you're actually in the room with people, It could be your school, it could be a classroom, it could be your workplace, it could be your gym, it could be a restaurant, wherever it is when you're in the room with people. How do we see people? We're intentional about scanning the room. Look at people. Look at them in the eyes. Take a look around and ask the Lord, Lord, is there anybody in here that you want me to bless, that you want me to share with, that you want me to encourage? Scan the room. Third area of of, of practical teaching here and how we see people is now once you're in the room and you're actually having conversation with people, listen, ask good questions. Friends, I think there are probably too many Christians out there that talk too much. Said the guy giving a 30 minute message. I think we need to get really, really good at asking questions of other people. How do we see the needs of others? We ask good questions and we learn from them. We open our ears to hear what they're saying, to hear their troubles, to hear their suffering, to hear their pain, to hear their worry. Ready to respond. The second thing that we need to do, learn from Jesus here is we need to feel. You know, God has created us to feel and this is a good thing. Now I'm currently in a master class on feeling because I have four girls. (laughs) Oftentimes I'm saying, Jesus, what would you do? (laughs) But a few things about feeling. First, having feelings is not weakness. A lot of the men in the room need to hear that. Having feelings is is not a weakness. Actually, the Lord allowed himself, Jesus allowed himself to have feelings, to, to feel things deeply. And it's not a weakness to have feelings. It can be a barometer to what's happening around us. Secondly, we need to welcome our feelings. Uh, Our feelings are not to be avoided because they can be indicators to what's happening in our life and the life of others. And the third thing I'd say about feelings here is this, is that we need to listen to our feelings, but not exclusively. Exclusively. When we only listen to our feelings, we can be led out of reality. We can spiral out of control. It can spin ourselves into fear. So we need to reason, listen to our feelings, but also use our our minds to discern what's happening. But allow the Lord to use your feelings so that you can be moved with compassion. Which leads to the third thing that's revealed to us that we need to learn from Jesus is we need to be people who move. You know, Jesus sees the woman. His heart moves with compassion. He feels for her and then he moves. What does it look like for you to move right now? To go out and be compassionate? What does it look like for you to learn to stop? Jesus stops everything and he has compassion on the woman. I think we're the crowd. We need to learn from Jesus. But I also think we're the young man. I can tell you I'm the young man. I've experienced coming to life in Jesus Christ. This is what he does. He raises people to life. Jesus brings life. I want to ask you, have you been raised to life in Jesus Christ? Are you a new creation in Jesus? This is what the Lord wants for you, what he desires for you, that you'd come out of an old life into a new life with him. That you'd be forgiven from your sins, that you'd have eternity with him. I wonder, have you been brought into new life? This is what Jesus does. I think we're also the young man because we've experienced the fact that Jesus can bring life in in places that are dead in our life. And I wonder if you need a touch from Jesus today. If you need something, something in your life's dead that, that needs to be brought back to life, would you bring it before the Lord? It could be your walk with Jesus. Maybe it's, it's felt dead. It could be your marriage. It, it's, it feels dead. You, you need the Lord to bring it back to life, to raise it back to life. Maybe it's your work, your, your calling. Maybe it's the gifts that God has given you. They've been laying dormant, dead. You need the Lord to bring it back to life. This is what Jesus does. I think we can, we can associate ourselves with the man who was dead and was brought back to life. And maybe for you, maybe for you, you identify with the widow. Maybe for you, you you come into this place, you are listening to this message and you're going through great loss. You're mourning, you're going through great trouble and you need a touch from Jesus. Here's what I'd like to say to you. Is that our Jesus, he sees you and he sees you. He comes down before you and he says, don't cry. There's, there's a better future. Stick close to him. Draw near to him. Allow his presence to minister to you. Friends, this is what Jesus did. He, he, he saw, he felt, and he moved. And now he's calling us to see, to feel, and to move. But it all starts with seeing. Where I want to leave you today is asking the question, Jesus, what are you wanting me to see? I want to encourage you and challenge you after this message to spend some time in prayer asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to see? But only ask it if you're willing to feel, for your heart to break for what the Lord reveals to you. But only go as far as feeling if you're willing to move, ready to be a part of the problem, ready to be a part of blessing those around us. Hey, I hope that this message has been helpful, encouraging to you, challenging, that the word of God has transformed us, compelled us uh, to be people living compassionate lives, people who see the need, people who feel and experience the hurt and pain and the experiences people are going through, and people who are committed to moving in the power of Jesus. I pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.